Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Freshwater Perspectives, where today we're going to be talking about freshwater mussels, their lives as unexpected anglers, and water quality monitors. So stay tuned. How are we doing? Doing all right today, Riley. What about you, man? I'm doing well. And for the listeners, thanks for listening. This is Freshwater Perspectives, where we talk anything related to freshwater, conservation, aquatic biology, uh, you name it. We'll, please, actually, you name it. We'll cover it. So if anybody has any suggestions, right? <laughs> uh, we, we have a website called fishwaterandtravel.com. You can leave comments there. And uh, yeah, so I'm Riley Bewley. Like I said, I'm a co-host, and the other co-host is... Matt Gladfelter. Bada bing, bada boom. So, yeah, man, I'm doing good. It's changing seasons up here. I'm like noticing it, and it's 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 weird, right? Where it's fall. Can't say the same down here. I know. <laughs> so, so I'm hot. I'm uh, in northern Wisconsin on Lake Superior uh, shoreline, and Matt is in Auburn, Alabama. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, yeah it's like the, I, I notice that the like the under it's really forested here, and like the understory, like that the fern level. Mm-hmm. just changed and i was like oh no it's oh coming. no what do you mean that's the best it is it is the best i actually falls my favorite season but i also noticed i think it's like the sun's rays right the angle because it's like mm-hmm. the days are getting a little bit shorter but like it just is visually different hmm. if that makes sense i think so i guess i never yeah. noticed that much i've noticed it i'm <laughs> like yeah just it's, it's it seems different outside right hmm. and uh yeah man oh my gosh uh, my wife and I went camping last weekend, oh. or a couple weekends ago. Um, so we record these a little bit early. So please disregard our uh, banter if um, the, <laughs> the days don't match up with the days that you listen to it. Uh, that's how we do it right now, and you'll have to bear with us. But uh, so we went camping around, yeah, Labor Day. Just oh, okay. a nightmare. Just a nightmare. Just people everywhere. People everywhere. We had uh, just. I wish my wife was here. That uh just the the these these super cool people pulled in uh right next to us at like 11:30 just started mm-hmm. blaring like just belligerent and uh just the like the tents was probably they set up I don't know 20 feet from us it was one of those campsites we mm. which it last time we went it was empty right so it was like it was beautiful we had like a whole space to ourselves it was right on um the Mississippi River so we were by Lacrosse uh my favorite place in the world and um it was just gorgeous. But then, yeah, these two yahoos came over and, like, um, just, like, you know, they, they, they had stuff that they, – they had, like, a whole blow-up bed in their tent. Oh, uh, they're and not like, really roughing it then. That's, they that's weren't roughing camping. it, and, like, the tent, it had a hole in it. So they're like, oh, it's, you know, like, uh, I'm falling off because, you know, it was, like, the difference in – pressure or whatever oh, it's geez. moving them and like the one guy he was he's like don't don't move i'm drunk i'm gonna be sick i'm gonna be sick i'm like oh my gosh <laughs> until like 2 30 in the morning so uh were these like younger guys like yeah i think one of them got kicked out of their uh dorm room actually and that's why they're there <laughs> i swear to god man and i was like oh my lord it was it was funny and then like but also i'm like I hate you guys so much. Yeah, there's a certain point where that stops being funny, and you're like, "All right, the joke's kind of yeah worn out by now." But um, yeah, it's seasons are changing. We got some kind of 
bigger storms here and uh it's interesting to see like on the um lake superior tributaries are going into it right and like uh mm-hmm. if you see this big storm it's it's kind of almost like in alabama matt where we were that clay um yeah so like if you lake superior right super pristine water quality mm-hmm. but then yet yeah, like every now and then we're in this it's called Sh- Shawamigan bay and uh it's some tributaries come into it and like yeah the the, the bay will kind of turn murky brown and you're like hmm. whoa and it's yeah these storms and stuff and it's interesting hmm. right yeah so. the only the only signal of fall down here in alabama is when college football starts yeah auburn alabama just turns into just the sea of people every weekend there's eight home games this year oh there's gosh. only four away games so every weekend oh. i think the first five games are home games so f- just five straight weekends you can't really go anywhere on saturday I need, to, I need to go for i'm not a big football or sports nut but uh it is a sight to see it's there's yeah, tents it's... everywhere um there's people parked just on the grass all willy-nilly <laughs> just on the sidewalks just, just everywhere and it's, there's yep. people there's cars every blade of grass on that campus has a lawn chair on it from just a random tailgate yeah on fridays that so the day before people will they're they don't go to the university they may have at some point but you'll just be going to class and you see some some person in their lawn chair just sitting out just and that's their spot they're saving oh their God. spot for the tailgate tomorrow that was it was it was a spectacle it was it was yeah. it was interesting i'm gonna have yeah. to come back for a game yeah yep. i mean we're we're going to the game today so it's, you <gasps> today? Know. that's yeah. exciting yeah. yeah who are they playing it, it, san jose state so yeah, i'm definitely dating this podcast now san jose state so we'll that's see okay. how it goes okay interesting yeah mm-hmm. um it's that's fun yeah mm-hmm. it's festive right it's like a yeah. smaller southern community it's not not that small auburn anymore but uh it's still you yeah. know just i think that stadium seats ninety thousand. And... Eighty six thousand, eighty seven thousand. yeah okay it's... Okay, I was close. <laughs> <laughs> I personally like I I'm a huge sports guy. I love college football, love college um like basketball, NFL, all that stuff. Um but personally, and this is just my personal opinion, I don't think you can beat the atmosphere of college football like anywhere. Maybe college basketball. I just think college sports just have like that emotion in it that professional mm-hmm. sports like I don't the fans don't really have a skin in the game, you know? Like the students are like Oh, they feel yeah. real connected. So they just, you can just feel it, man. It's awesome. Huh. Yeah. All fun. All right, everybody, we're back. And uh, for those of you who don't know how we do this podcast, it's kind of a little bit of a, a storytelling podcast right now. So Matt or I uh, will typically switch off week by week and we'll um, bring a topic and we'll discuss it. So Matt is going to lead discussion today and I am going to hand it over to him. So Matt, all, all right. right. Yeah, I'm ready. Um, freshwater mussels, Riley. How you? What's your What's your knowledge base on freshwater mussels? Oh, I did some zebra mussel research when I was in my masters. Okay. But I, so limited, right? Okay. So that was just more so on the management, like getting rid of those suckers. Yeah. Nothing else. So uh, cool. I am a, a mussel novice. Cool. Yeah. So. Full disclosure, I purposely steered away from zebra and quagga mussels because I feel like they are, one, they're not native, obviously, and two, they're kind of exhausted. So if you want to, to talk about zebra and quagga mussels for a little bit, um, this the floor is yours to, to intro any of our audience that hasn't heard about that those issues in the Great Lakes. Okay. Yeah, and um, 
as we say every now and then, uh, Matt and I don't necessarily tell each other what we're going to be talking about either. So this is uh, <laughs> not necessarily scripted our banter. So hopefully uh, that's good. Um, but uh, yeah, the way we could do a whole, and potentially will do a, a podcast on those invasive species type of mm -hmm. mussels. And uh, yeah, zebra mussels uh, likely came through ballast water into the Great Lakes. And from there, uh, I believe it was Black or Caspian Sea. Maybe they're one of the same, but um, you know, so they came from that area over and they they spread from the ballast water. So they're they're in the Mississippi River Basin, which um, that's kind of a connector to a lot of different other places as well. Uh, some people some people actually enjoy them because they clear up water quality, mm -hmm. which please don't please don't put it into an area. Uh, and uh, we again, we can cover this very broad is look for these very small mussels encrusted on your boats or anything you put in the water um, ballast water might have these um, microscopic baby mussel velgers and they so they can get in a lot of areas um, disinfecting your your boats or using uh, leaving them out from time to time between you if you go from one lake to the next can be good to prevent the spread of mussels and invasive species in general you can use steam cleaners as well uh very big issue and i'm gonna i'm gonna stop it there so yeah yep um but yeah the biggest thing with mussels so like we're gonna talk about how great freshwater mussels are native freshwater mussels the biggest reason that zebra and quagga mussels aren't so great is that they are an exotic species right they're non-native species but they spread so quickly so they do their job too well um, and they're doing it in more of a um, lentic system, right? A more of a lake system where you don't have that flowing water. Um, so they're they're filtering that water out a lot faster. But so enough with those those non-native species. Let's let's talk about native freshwater mussels. Um, but so kind of just briefly going over mussel taxonomy here. So freshwater mussels are bivalves, of course. Uh, they're all included in the family Unionidae, so they're um, Uniid, you'll hear that, Uniid or Uniid mussels, um, and it includes roughly 890 to 900 species. Uh, they are nearly global distribution in freshwater systems with very few exceptions, honestly. Um, and personally, I just think that they are incredibly fascinating. Um, their life history, we're going to go all the way through it from A to Z. Um, there's a couple uh, at the very end. I'm going to finish it up with with a great little story about how useful freshwater mussels can be. Uh, but as far as the range distribution, we'll kind of cover that quickly here. Uh, so again, they're nearly global distribution. Um, almost 900 species make up Unian and mussels. Uh, they can be found again, like I said, in lotic or lentic systems. So lotic meaning flowing systems, stream or rivers. Lentic meaning relatively still water lake lake systems and things like that usually they'll form these kind of dense colonies or beds and they can completely cover stretches of a river or stream bed um, they can be really important as they can occupy several different parts of aquatic food webs uh, riley already mentioned how the zebra and quagga mussels can filter out water at a really high rate uh, this is not unique to just zebra and quagga mussels, freshwater mussels in general, depending on the species, they could filter 10 to 15 gallons of water per day. And that's just one single mussel. So multiply that out to an entire bed of mussels and you can wow. see how that, how, yeah, how they can clear out a small pond or an entire lake in, in not that short amount of time, honestly, it's that kind of exponential rate. Right. Um, 
So because of this, and this is actually tying back to our, our previous podcast that Riley talked about E. coli, if you have a, a stable, healthy muscle population in a particular stretch of river, they can do a really good job at filtering out pathogens, right? So like E. coli, um, they can help counteract harmful algal blooms as they're filtering out the water really well. They really do a great job of filtering out all different types of plankton. Um, but beyond that, they're also a very stable food source for all different types of waterfowl, fishes, otters, raccoons, muskrats, things like that. Um, so that's kind of general overview of mussels. And I'm going to kind of jump around here a little bit, but I really, really want to get into their reproduction because this is probably my favorite thing about mussels. Um, so it may not be that surprising, but because they are bivalves, they're essentially clams, right? Uh, freshwater mussels. Uh, they don't really have any complex eyes. They can't move around all that well. Uh, they do have this kind of fleshy foot that they can use to dig through the sediment. They can move around a couple feet a day if they really, really want to. Uh, but by and large, they're going to kind of stay put where they're at. So they had to get pretty creative when it came to reproduction, um, for some sedentary, uh, organisms, what they'll do is kind of broadcast spawning where they just kind of release their gametes into the water and whatever happens, happens. So that kind of happens here with freshwater mussels. Uh, when the water quality parameters in a particular stream or system are ideal, and usually this trigger is water temperature, so warmer water temperature, uh, typically in the, in the spring, right, early spring, uh, the males will just release all their gametes, so all their sperm into the water, and their part's kind of done at that point. The females then, as they're filtering their water, as they're feeding, they can detect when the sperm is in the water. So they then take that sperm, and then they can fertilize their eggs. The females then keep the eggs in their shells uh, for a period of time until they grow into these larva muscle, larval muscles, which are called glochidia. And that's the, that's the term I'll use from here on out. So a larval muscle is also called a glochidia. Um, and then depending on the species, some muscles release these glochidia um, within that same year. So kind of late spring, early summer, late summer. Or they'll hold on to them for an entire year until the following spring. Um and then as far as when they're actually ready to release these glochidia, um, there's kind of an interesting little caveat here when it comes to muscle reproduction, right? And it's that they need, like, I really hope this is like a shock factor. So they need to, they need a host fish. They need to reside, these, these glochidia, they need to reside within the gills of a fish. So they're essentially a parasite for a small portion of their life. Um, the reason that they we assume that they need to be on a fish's gills is so that it keeps them up in the water column, so that way they're not getting buried by any sediment. And on top of that, they're also being carried away from that kind of parent bed of muscles. So that way the parent generation isn't out competing that next generation. So you're actually spreading the muscles huh. out geographically. What do you think of that, Riley? Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't actually, I knew about glochidia, but mm -hmm. I knew like some did the, the, um, had that parasitic form, mm -hmm. but, uh, I actually did re like think about like how, how they, the sexual reproduction, like males mm -hmm. release mm -hmm. their sperm and then it just by way of filtering, that's how it got into females. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, super, super weird life history, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And we're yeah. not even done. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. So 
like let's see yeah so like i said so some fish um or so some mussels when they're ready to release their glochidia these females they'll kind of like with the males with that broadcast spawning they'll just release the glochidia into the water and they're just going to kind of hope that a host fish is nearby and that the glochidia attach to the host fish's gills um at that point you can imagine there could be pretty high mortality in their glochidia which is why they release several millions of glochidia at once but even then you can have up to 99.9% mortality in some of these uh some of these populations uh so being the clever little suckers that they are uh these muscles came up with a very a very clever strategy to get around this or a, a, a certain group of muscles i should say um so some groups like the the group belonging to the genus Lampsilis uh what they did is I really wish so on YouTube we're going to have a great video component to this and in the article I also have a link to check this out because you need to watch this. So when females in this group Lampsilis are ready to release their glochidia they open their shell slightly and they expose this kind of fleshy appendage that looks remarkably like a small minnow or a darter. And when I say remarkably, I'm like, if you looked really quickly, you're like, oh, that's a fish over there. Like, it looks almost exactly like a little fish or a darter. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And, like, the part that always blew my mind, these things don't have eyes, Riley. Like, when you're talking about evolution, like, and just how it works and just, you know, there are things that just kind of, like, wean their way down, like you're talking about natural selection and it's just how in the world do you get this thing to look exactly like a darter or a minnow it's just it's oh, absolutely wild yeah it's just yeah you know like they, huh. it's yeah, wild they it. absolutely wild eyeless i mean yeah but i mean that's how natural selection works right and for some weird dumb luck this one particular muscle millions and millions of years ago just presented that perfectly uh, constructed fleshy appendage that looked just like a small darter. Um, so then what happens is this natural lore, right? Um, which is why they're they're unexpected anglers, right? They have their own natural lures built in. Um, yep. So it does a really good job at attracting a host fish. And they can kind of flick it even to look like the, the little darter a minute was swimming in the water column. So they'll kind of flick it to make sure they're getting the attention of a nearby fish. Uh, if the fish either comes very close or even tries to strike the lure, the so if it strikes the lure, the sh the muscle will quickly clamp down like on the mouth of the uh, the uh, the host fish, and it'll just squirt. It'll kind of release all of its glochidia into its mouth, and then it goes huh. through the gills. And they almost all I don't want to say almost all a high percentage attached to the gills. Or if it's very close, they they have these kind of chemoreceptors. They can they can kind of sense when the fish is very close then they'll also just kind of release because of course the fish is swimming head first right so they're just going to release all the glochidia into the fish's face so that's and how they'll also get filtered through the gills chemo receptors is how they know the fish is close yeah 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 oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. they are remarkably i mean we'll, we'll get to how sensitive they can be uh but yeah it's all chemo receptors with them uh, huh. they are very good at knowing what's in the water column without even like having to see it or sense it right it's all just chemo receptors Huh. Um, yeah, please, if you're seeing this, if you're just listening to this, please go to the article on fishwaterandtravel.com, click the link, um, to, to look at that video. It is, uh, for me, I just, I can't stop watching it. Um, so once those glochidia, so, right. So at this point they're essentially parasitic, right? 
Like, they're not parasitic in that they're really harming the fish. I assume they might be negatively affecting their respiration at some point. Um, but they're not essentially trying to kill the fish, right? Because that would be detrimental to the to the glochidia, of course. Um, so they can stay on the fish's uh, gills for several weeks, up to several months, uh, which, have, like I said, allows those those uh, that that offspring glochidia to be carried away from the parent bed. Um, so that way, it limits overcrowding on a particular stretch of river, and it also keeps that parent bed from outcompeting that that younger generation. Uh, and then once they're they're mature, the glochidia will detach. Uh, they'll settle in the stream bed, and then depending on the particular species, they'll either immediately start filter feeding, or they'll do uh, this kind of sediment feeding, where they're using their foot to kind of sift through the ground, and then they can also have some chemoreceptors in there, and they're kind of just picking stuff out of the mud there for a little bit until so, they get the right size. So um, when they're attached to that fish host, mm -hmm. so they're not they're not feeding; they're just along for the ride. I believe they are doing some suspension feeding there because you have okay. all that water coming over the fish's gills, right? As they're going through their normal kind of and they're breathing. Nabbing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because they, so yes, yeah, so like I said, they're so they're on there for several weeks to several months. So yeah, they, yeah. and they do have to kind of mature at some point to actually detach. So the, yeah, there, there is some off. feeding going on there. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Um, and yeah, so once they're kind of ready to go, they're, transitioning to 100% filter feeding more or less um like i said 10 to 15 gallons per day just one muscle depending on the species oh my gosh um yeah so they're just sucking water through through their site um through this appendage it's going through their <laughs> through their shell they're i wonder if they just out. happen you know what i'm saying like that's like some animals that like just eat one thing or like mm -hmm. you know like those filter feeders you think they're just like 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 uh like um some some fish are uh, they just have their mouth open all day and they're mm -hmm. like they think yeah. they're just just excited they're just like yes every day I mean, well the great thing about it being a muscle is that they're they're not very picky right so they're getting a little yeah. bit of everything they're getting a pretty pretty diverse diet depending on the system get some phytoplankton some zooplankton some bacteria like, yeah, I mean, some detritus right mm -hmm. yummy yummy detritus a little bit yeah, of everything yeah okay so, and then depending on the species, so mussels are incredibly long-lived organisms. They can live up to 70 years, even more than that in some cases. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh yep. gosh, Super long-lived. Um, and then, of course, depending on the species, also sexual maturity, they can reach that anywhere between 2 and 12 years. So either really quick or it can take a long time. So that's usually years. the trade-off you'll see with a long-lived um, species, of course, is that it takes so long to reach sexual maturity. Um, so before we move on to the next section, Riley, you got any thoughts on their early life history, their reproduction, anything like that? You didn't realize 70 years. Yeah, they're long-lived. 70 years. And that that was just the quick and dirty number I found. I'm almost positive you can find some freshwater mussels that are older than 70 years. I don't think it's that common, but... Yeah, yeah. think of, like, the river for 70 years, like, flowing above you, like... Mm -hmm. like does it do they ever dry up like what the heck well just think know? of 70 years ago from now it's not that's the 1950s isn't that crazy 1950s yeah. <laughs> no internet people being nice <laughs> there's no internet these, trolls these muscles were none the wiser oh no internet trolls no podcasts we would yeah. have to go to like a station to do this you know what yeah I'm saying? go to a radio station man we'd have to like construct a um 
a, an antenna in our backyards. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And all the while, oh man, you really, you really brought it up too. And like all the while in the 1950s, um, freshwater mussels are on the decline. Um, uh, which we'll get to in just a minute here. Yeah, why? Well, there's uh, no EPA, probably, right? No, 19. It was 1972. When the, the Clean Water, water Act. Through, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was the Clean Water Act, right in 72. Yep. So we went through the exciting part. We're gonna hit a little bit of a lull here as we as we get into the reality that is freshwater mussels at this point. So they there's like I said there you know there's always a trade off with some of these organisms. Um, they're incredibly long lived. They're filter feeders. Because they're filter feeders, they can be super sensitive to their environment. And that is just because that bioaccumulation, right? If you have any particular toxin, even if it's at a low concentration, if you're filtering 10 to 15 gallons per day of that toxin, it's going to accumulate, especially if it, especially if it can't leave or purge the, the organism very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have some, um, some high mortality, and they're, they're usually used as an indicator species for deteriorate water quality. Um, so, I mean, overall, a rapid de decrease in muscle populations is usually kind of a telltale sign that water quality is worsening. Um, so with that being said, if you had to guess, Riley, so in North America, there's roughly 300 species of freshwater mussels that are native to the continent. How many of those would you guess are threatened or endangered percentage-wise? I feel like this is a trick question. I'm going to say 20%. It is 70%, Riley. Oh my gosh. 70% of native freshwater mussels are at risk of extinction, not even threatened or endangered, straight extinction. up at risk of extinction. Yeah. Oh my God. So, yeah, they are like, this is dramatically reshaping aquatic systems. Like I said, uh, lentic, lodic, however you put it. Um, and, you know, I don't know if anyone's done this. And I, I, it probably wouldn't correlate that well, but talking about E. coli outbreaks, uh, the role that freshwater mussels play, they can filter out bacteria. If you're having a decrease in freshwater mussels, you know, you're, it probably isn't too surprising that you're seeing a lot of bacterial infections in freshwater systems, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, I mean, if you want to talk about why they're declining, may not be that surprising to a lot of people right um since the industrial revolution we've been dumping stuff in water even after the clean water act riley talked about in the in the last podcast that there is a list that the epa has right that yeah. like a whole list of of deteriorated uh, water quality systems um some of those systems have been on there for years without anything really being done and you can imagine if there are freshwater mussels in that system they are probably long gone at this point unfortunately um yeah. So as far as specifically, they're really sensitive to stream like uh, uh, sedimentation, right? So a lot of uh, a lot of runoff, a lot of erosion, right? So that that not only covers them, which isn't necessarily a big deal because they can kind of dig their way through it, but if they're filtering out more sediment, it just makes it harder for them, and it can really kind of tear their um their their feeding apparatus up, right? So they're kind of, it's it's pretty hard to eat when you got a mouthful of dirt, right? Kind of at so the they, end of the day. They can tell what sediment versus what's food. Yeah, and we'll get to that later. And that okay. what they'll do is that if there's a lot, if there's deteriorating water quality, what they'll do is they'll just straight up close their shell. And if that water quality doesn't get better, they're essentially just going to starve themselves, right? 
Huh. So it's that kind of trade-off where it's like, well, I'm really hungry. I should eat. Well, I know what's going to eat is going to kill me. Well, if I don't eat, I'm going to die anyway kind of thing. So it's like mm, it's a tough yeah. spot to be as a freshwater mussel, man. Oh, poor little um, pussy. Yeah. And then on the Shelly. other side. Shelly. <laughs> Shelly. <laughs> so on the other side of that, so we talked about them being these kind of unexpected parasites, uh, these kind of surprisingly good anglers, right, with that artificial or not, not even artificial, this natural lure. Um if they have a loss of hosts a lo- of host fish, they can't reproduce effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. they can't. They're they're they need that fish to carry their offspring, not even carry it somewhere else. They just need it to suspend their offspring in the water column so that they don't get buried. And if that host fish isn't around, they actually they can't reproduce effectively. Um, yeah, so that's what that's what's also contributing in large part to native muscle decline is that host fish decline as well. And um. um when I was an undergrad, one of my uh, positions, I got to work on a lot of different projects, right? And one of them was tr- the the researcher that I helped with, with was trying to find uh, an alternative host species for an endangered mussel mm-hmm. up in the, the Mississippi. So it was like um, I was in charge, I guess, of helping raise all these fish that they wanted to test. Oh, wow. They would run the trials of getting the glucidia. And then mm-hmm. see if the the fish would take it. You know what I'm saying? Like with the, wow. if it would like uh, climb on, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, it was an interesting like part of science where it was just like uh, like just try try anything, right? Yeah. Like to help these endangered mussels. So and yeah. I remember like the the preciousness of the glucidia because there mm-hmm. it was an endangered or threatened. I can't remember. Either way, it was like you, know, you only got so many shots. So mm-hmm. it was yeah, some pretty fun research to be at least in some facet a part of yeah yeah and there is a there is a a good number of hatcheries i think is the best way to put it hatcheries all across the country that are working to raise freshwater mussels and try to uh, reintroduce them Uh, i know there's one here on the western state and the western side of alabama here yeah um and they're doing a good job of just trying to reintroduce they've been working with university of alabama and here auburn yeah (laughs) (laughs) represent i'm just trying to reintroduce them to native streams um but that kind of it just kind of brings up a separate problem right you could put the mussels there but if the water quality hasn't gotten better or the host fish isn't there the mussels aren't going to be there for that long yeah totally interesting Uh, yeah they are because they're so sensitive, you know, there's all these different factors that can contribute to their decline. You then need to fix all of those factors before you can have a healthy and stable population again. That's, I think wow. that's kind of the key with any, with trying to reintroduce any species, right? You can establish a, a natural population, but getting them to be stable enough to reproduce is always like, that's the thing you really need to hone in on. And that's something that is a particularly interesting problem here for freshwater mussels because they need that host fish interesting yeah yeah so I see, it. I see where you're coming from yeah you know it's 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 quite the pickle man um the pickle. one yeah a couple things also that i learned when reading up on freshwater mussels i so i did understand that they probably had a big cultural significance for native for native tribes right because they are a con- almost constant food source they were used as tools uh they, they would make them for their shells jewelry as well one thing I definitely didn't know is that from, I think it was about 1910 to the 1950s, there was an entire global industry built off of buttons made from mussel shells. Did you know this, Riley? 
so I have a shirt on that says lacrosse. Yeah, and um, so there's um, it's on the Mississippi River, and that was huge in lacrosse. So there's oh. a street called Pearl Street because oh. of freshwater pearls. So there was buttons and pearls. Yeah, so I think mm -hmm. some of like our classes, yeah, there was like the photos of like a guy standing on like a pile of. Um, you can only get so many buttons punched out of that uh, mother of pearl inside mm -hmm. there. So yeah, it was a super big industry um, yeah. in by lacrosse. Yeah, yeah. The paper I read said that over 200 factories at one point were were up and running in the United States in the the kind of in this booming time. Um, and then the reason it died down around the 1950s is that's when plastics were were invented. So oh, that's all the decline. <laughs> Yeah, you were sitting on that one, weren't you? <laughs> Plastics, dang it. Uh, no. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's probably for the best, right? Because you, yeah. at that point, you were certainly having the over harvesting of mussels, and then it would still take another two decades before the Clean Water Act actually came into effect, and then water quality started to increase to some extent. And it wasn't till the late 1970s that anyone bothered to start looking at freshwater mussels and whether or not they were endangered. So you can kind of see how far behind the curve they were when they actually was like, oh, shoot, these things are disappearing pretty quickly. Huh. Um, yeah. 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 I know another one of the studies I helped on, um, we had to look at the inside. So some of the, the freshwater mussels oh, and uh, okay. the, the lady next to me who like shucked one open, found a, a pearl, freshwater oh. pearl. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> Super interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, it's they're they're awesome little critters, honestly. Yeah. But. By far. So I said that the, having their natural lore is my favorite. Uh, so that's probably my favorite part of their life history. My favorite story about freshwater um, mussels has to be from this little town in Poland called Poznan. If you are Polish and I butchered <laughs> that, I apologize. Uh, but this little town of Poznan, Poland, they have eight freshwater mussels that are used as drinking water quality monitors. Have you heard of okay. this story, Riley? No, no, I no? have not. All right, uh -huh. well, buckle up because this is this is fantastic. All right, all right. So I remember seeing this, I think, on like Instagram like years ago, and the second I knew I was going to read this article or write this article, I was scouring the internet trying to find anything related to this. <laughs> so yes, so there is a town in Poland, Poznan, Poland, that has eight freshwater mussels um, that they use as drinking water quality monitors. So how they do this is they have these eight mussels set up in a ray and they have the drinking water, potentially a drinking water, right? That's potentially potable flowing over the mussels. So because the mussels are so sensitive to environmental cues, if the mussels sense anything in the water that they don't like, they close their shell. No, I thought, I thought then, you were going to say that. <laughs> so what they do is they have little springs with a magnet hot glued to the top Stop of the muscle shell so that when the muscle shell closes <laughs> it lowers the magnet onto a sensor trips the sensor the reason there's eight is there's a computer that's reading the sensors right so if four or more muscles close their shells and trip their sensors the computer shuts down the entire drinking plant are you for real <laughs> i promise you yes. no isn't that fantastic Live by the muscle, die by the muscle. Oh my Dude, gosh! It is incredible. It'll shut down I the whole, the shut whole thing. Shut down the entire drinking water plant <laughs> if four muscles close their shell. 
And the reason they have four, so muscles do like take little naps, so you can have yeah. one like close its shell randomly. So that's why they have eight, and they need four to close their shells. Uh, but it's okay. So they're working around the clock. You, you can imagine they're probably pretty stressed out. You know, they're not getting paid. Uh, yeah. But all they do, so it's three months of service, and then they get released to a particular preserved stretch of river where they only put muscles back. They never take muscles out. So the same muscle will never be reused for the, the drinking water plant. They are retired. <laughs> that's right. That is fantastic. Isn't I've that fantastic? I've never, never heard of this story. There's also a Polish documentary that was made about I think it translates to Fat Kathy or something like that. You have to you have to pay for it. I wasn't going to pay for it, but feel free, um, listeners, to try to find that documentary. There is a trailer you can find on YouTube. It's 47 seconds long. Um, it doesn't tell you anything about the muscles, really. It just has pictures of muscles, and it's very dramatic. And there's like a kind of a narrator uh, doing some dialogue over top. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I believe the Polish capital was thinking about introducing this as well. At least when I read the article about this, they they loved the idea because because honestly, like all joking aside, how expensive is some of the most powerful uh, measurement apparatus? Right? If you want to talk about like, HPLC, like high performance liquid chromatography, um, even then, so like with a lot of instruments, they're super powerful. So you can measure stuff down to parts per billion, parts per trillion right so micrograms or nanograms per liter but the problem is you have to know what you're looking for so you can put water into a particular machine and usually how they how they kind of the kind of readout they give you is imagine a line kind of moving across the screen and you see little peaks right if you don't know what that peak is it's essentially useless so you need to know what like the the machine will measure whatever you want but if you don't know what it's giving you it's useless um Whereas these muscles, it's pretty simple. They can measure, measure in air quotes, a bunch of stuff simultaneously. They're super sensitive, and it's a pretty easy response. They just close their shells, you know? <laughs> yep. I will wow. say, though, um, like I said, all kidding aside, they also do use, um, like, technology. Like, if, if the muscles are closing their shells, they will actually go in and use, like, sophisticated techniques to verify that there is a... Uh, yeah, like there there is a contaminant, or so they'll try to like find that particular contaminant. The aquatic canary in a coal mine situation. Oh, that's, what I, that's what I wrote in the, in the um, article. <laughs> really, like verbatim. I, did, I wrote, I wrote like, oh, these guys are like little canaries in the coal mine. <laughs> Bat and I are too much alike. We gotta yeah. find a new host. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't that oh fantastic? God. Like, yeah. That who who would have thunk everything with muscles? They are. I mean, I just that's all I really had. Uh, we can wrap things up. I mean, they are. <laughs> that's like, all we like, need. That's oh exactly. Just end it on a high note. I mean, talk about their life history. They're parasites for one portion of their life. Mm -hmm. They then turn into anglers, right? Yeah. With that natural lure, um, they attract that host fish. They're carried off. They're incredible filter feeders, ten to fifteen gallons per day, depending on the species. They can live up to 70 years. They're a major food source for waterfowl, fish, mammals, pretty much anything that comes in contact with water, right? Mm -hmm. um, not only that, they were the center of an entire global industry for one point in the 20th century, early 20th century. Yeah. Um, you can also use them to, to monitor your drinking water if you, if you so choose. Um, but again, all kidding aside, unfortunately, mussels are the not even like talk about they're endangered 
They are the most endangered organism in North America and are likely, see, I'm going to read just that last line of my article word by word. Uh, They are the most endangered organism in North America and are likely acting as canaries in the coal mine for the deteriorating water quality in many parts of the continent. Wow. So... Sorry there to end it on a somber note, but please go ahead to feel free to to read the article fishwaterandtravel.com. Uh we have all of our corresponding uh social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, on uh, YouTube as well, Fishwater and Travel. Uh anything else to to say before we sign off here, Riley? No, that was great. I'm going to have to find the the Polish <laughs> muscle workers. That's so funny. Yeah. Um yep. I mean, it makes sense though, right? Like Mhm. It's like why yeah. why reinvent the wheel when you already have these little yeah bioindicators yeah That's I, right. so I mean muscle wise I've I've definitely um, the last couple of years yeah taking some muscle measurements and going out and like actually sampling form it's super fun it's uh, you're in wetsuits and you're kind of clawing this mm-hmm. <laughs> we were in uh, that was just a very degraded river in Iowa and uh, but there was like a uh i think the company we just got training but it was the area where like uh so some companies if if you do like construction on a riverway uh you have to do like an environmental impact statement Mm -hmm. and then if you have things like muscles you have to figure out how you're going to rectify it so like if hey we're gonna build here that's like well that's great but you also have to need to like throw down money for um so they they had like removal and relocation and then monitoring of muscle beds. So, wow, for, they actually did relocation. In this case, they did. And, wow. Um, which I mean, it was like downstream a little bit. Okay. And I was like, hmm. But um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if we you're were fixing like, the problem, but yeah. But like we went out with the crew and they taught us how they do like muscle transect surveys. So like, hey, hmm. like we don't know. Yeah. So it's like mathematically, how can you determine? average out how many muscles are in a stream so like Mm -hmm. we did that and like transected it out but then also so they would put back muscles and then like go back year over year and they would um they would have muscles with different um tag numbers right Mm -hmm. just glued on the tags and then they would look at growth for example uh survivability or they found like an empty muscle shell with the tag they knew something happened to Mm -hmm. Or if they couldn't just find it all, there was, I'm sure, like, statistic-wise or math, they knew, like, how much or how many should be around if things were going well or they're all dead, too. But, uh, yeah, it was it was fun. Yeah. I didn't want really... to stick my face under the water, though, because it was pretty gross water. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, honestly, like, yeah, I'm really surprised they, they allowed relocation, especially of how yeah. threatened they are. Well, there was um, one kid who... Um, I told you the water is gross that I wouldn't do it, but mm. the kid just what well, <laughs> he went like head first under the water and was like kicking mm. and like I called him otter for the rest of the day because he was like just pulling up like handfuls of muscles. <laughs> oh, you go put him on his belly, right? Yeah, it was fun because I mean that area was a little more bolstered in population than maybe others. Okay. So like, I mean, we found like a hundred. Plus. Yeah, well, the, so those are great because you can kind of use those yeah, as like a seed population. If you do know you have one stable population, mm-hmm. you can try to take those and kind of relocate a small portion to try to mm-hmm. get another portion of the river to uh to to have to have their own bed. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, they're like I said, they're they're sensitive little critters. There's there could be one weird little reason, like water depth, for instance. They they can be really sensitive too. Um, yeah, where you know everything is the same, like a mile down river, but I don't know the water's like half a foot deeper, and they just don't like it over there for whatever reason. So holy lord. Yeah, I know. Yeah, they're finicky cool. little things. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Very but, nice, Matt. That was fun. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, it was right. fun, wasn't it? It had its ups, mm-hmm. had its downs, had its yep. WTF moment. So. Yep. yep. <laughs> All right. But, yeah, we'll see you next time, Riley. Oh, we'll see you, Matt.